Welcome to Diffuse Congruence. This is episode 103 of the American Muslim Experience, and we are back in the month of October, and there's a reason for that. But uh, before I get into that, I want to welcome uh, my co-host, as always, Omer. Omer, welcome back. Hey, Assalamualaikum Perez. How you doing? Waalaikum salam. Doing well. And uh, so I'm going to get right into it. So we are really excited, uh, at least, well, well, I'm, I'm excited for a number of reasons. So uh, continuing in kind of the tradition of late, we actually have a returning guest to the show. So I'm really excited uh, that we are joined once again by Kamran Pasha. Now, what's interesting about Kamran, well, what's interesting about Kamran and his relationship to the show is that Kamran was our guest for episode three. And as Omar pointed out right before we got on was this is episode 103. So literally there's like a 100 episode gap in between the time that we had uh, Kamran on uh, on uh, last time. And that was December, 2013. So uh, Kamran, um, I'm going to welcome you to the show. But before I do, I do want to uh, quickly um, just kind of refresh our audience uh, as to a little bit about you, Kamran Pasha is a screenwriter and director, uh, one of the first Muslim filmmakers to succeed in Hollywood. He recently worked as writer-producer on Showtime on the Showtime Network's drama series set in the American military prison in Guantanamo Bay, which was actually directed by Oliver Stone. Um, previously, Kamran served as a writer and co-producer on uh, several uh, Golden Globe and Emmy-nominated series such as Sleeper Cell, um, also Rain, Nikita, Roswell, New Mexico, uh, many, many shows, Kings, Bi uh, Bionic Woman. So Kamran's uh, got a huge sort of uh, uh, imprint already uh, in terms of Hollywood. Um, let's see, Kamran is also a published novelist. In 2009, Simon & Schuster published Mother of the Believers, which is a novel showcasing the rise of Islam. Uh, from the eyes of the Prophet Muhammad's wife, Aisha. Uh, his second novel, uh, Shadow of the Sword, follows the conflict between Richard the Lionheart and Muslim leader Salahuddin Saladin uh, and the control of Jerusalem during the Crusades. Gamran holds a BA and an MBA from Dartmouth College and a JD. So Kamran is a is, is an attorney as well uh, from Cornell Law School. Uh, no slacker is Kamran and, and an alumnus of the MFA uh, producers program at the UCLA Film School. That is all to say, welcome back to the show, Kamran. Well, thank you. And alaikum to both Parvez and to Omar. It means a lot to me to be back on the show. I remember when we did this, uh, this you know, episode three back in 1983. I mean, the world, oh, not 19, 83. It feels like 83. <laughs> I feel like it's 83, right? It feels that 40 years back. But uh, I want to congratulate you on how far the podcast has come, you know, 100 episodes since then. Uh, and, uh, and I'm just delighted and honored that you'd bring me back on. No, that means a lot, Kamran. And uh, honestly, when I wanted to do this episode, um, and, and uh, no other guest came to mind, and, and Omar can vouch for this because I know that, like you, you have an affinity for the conversation that we're about to have today. And that is that uh, back on, for those who listen to the show, you, you may re recall that uh, right around, I think it was episode 75, in fact where Zucky and I kind of teased this idea of doing a series where, uh, or a series within the show, 
where we would kind of just basically talk about movies that we love, uh, just share our love and our admiration of movies. And so that particular episode was about the Godfather trilogy. We ended up talking about the entire trilogy. Um, and I went back and actually recent, like, like listened to it recently. And I, and I just, one of, it's one of my favorite episodes just because it's just me and Zucky kind of talking about something that we loved. And so with this episode, I wanted to talk about something or a movie that's very near and dear to me. Um, and I actually, my earliest memory with this movie actually is uh, shared with Omer, which I'll talk about in just a second. But uh, I know that Kamran, you love this movie as well. And that movie for the month of October, uh, uh, poignantly enough, is The Exorcist. 1973's The Exorcist. So, um, and, and real quick, before we actually get into the, to the like kind of an analysis or talk about our love for the movie, um, I'm going to share that little story about how it connects to me and Omer. Um, so I think it was 1985, Omer. And I, the reason I know that is because it was the night that one of, or up until that time, one of the biggest hurricanes to ever hit Houston, which was Hurricane Alicia, uh, was about to hit uh, the, the the part of Houston that we were staying. I think was, this was one of your trips um, back to Houston from Saudi Arabia, and you were staying the summer with us. And it was the summer of '84, and Hurricane Alicia was about to hit. So we were all bracing in our house, and I'm sure it wasn't just by coincidence, but um, a local television station station decided to play The Exorcist. And I remember both of our families sitting around the TV watching The Exorcist. <laughs> and later that night, we had Hurricane Alicia hit. So um, talk about talk about trial by fire, man. It was, uh, yeah, it was a horrifying movie and, and a horrifying experience of, uh, of, of sort of uh, living through a hurricane. I, I definitely remember being scared. And I think the thing that I thought of today is, and I asked you earlier, I'm like, how did our parents let us watch that? Especially because when I was just re- reviewing the movie again and, and and seeing some things in there that I didn't notice at age seven. Um, and it, you reminded me that it was probably on TV. So let's let's just give our parents the benefit of the doubt and say it was on TV. I was just about to say, there's some benefit of the doubt we can give our parents. Maybe, you know, just a little at least, uh, because it was, I, I think, edited for television. So, uh, I, I, you know take that for what it was, but it was at night. So, you know, those uh, like the censors do tend to allow a little bit more things than they, than they do um, uh, on during prime time. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, my admiration and my love for that movie has only grown exponentially since then. And I've come to appreciate it as an adult. I was almost sort of obsessed with it as a child. Uh, It scared the, 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 the hell out of me. I'll say it. It scared the hell out of me. And uh, to this day, if I really want to scare myself, I can just close my eyes and I can picture uh, Reagan's face and that's enough of a scare. And that, then that'll sort of definitely get the adrenaline going. So, um, Kamran, I, 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 I'll sort of lead, to, you know, uh, pass it over to you to kind of share any experiences that you have uh, and your love and admiration for the movie. And maybe we start with the, tell us about the first time you saw it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the first time I saw it is also when I probably shouldn't have seen it when I was, uh, I was a kid, right? And, uh, you know, look, remember all of us from the 80s, we were latchkey kids, you know, our parents were working. Right. That's a phrase you don't hear anymore, right? Because <laughs> I think we've all become latchkey people now. We're all like in our houses, right? <laughs> or whatever. But in those days, amazingly enough, kids, parents would be off working and the kids would basically just stay home by themselves, no babysitters. And so that was us, right? And so I was a latchkey yeah. kid. My, my parents were working and, uh, and, you know, I, I, we you know, we had the cool new VCR, right? We're so excited. We had the color TV VCR. And so uh, I remember uh, getting um, 
getting the uh, the, the VCR tape from from the video store, like in the old school, the old neighborhood video store before Blockbuster, right, uh, of, of The Exorcist. And my older sister and I, I must have been about maybe 12 or 13 years old, and my older sister must have been about 14, and we watched it, and it absolutely terrified us, right? And yeah. it, it, but the interesting thing is this: we didn't let my little sister watch it because we didn't hold it's a scary movie. And my little sister, who was who was about you know seven or eight years old, we said, "No, you have to be in the room. You can't watch." And she resented that, right? And so I later discovered this uh, that uh, you know a few days later, when both my sister were out of school, my little sister was lashy kid home alone at eight or whatever. She, you know, rebelliously took the tape and watched the whole movie by herself alone in the house at the age of eight. Oh my God! Wow! Came wow. Back to she was sitting there utterly. It was like the scene from the Ring when the girl is hiding in the closet, right? You know, she's utterly terrified, and and she to this day she is traumatized. I mean, to this day, my sister, who is a professor at you know at at Penn State, is like you know a mature adult. If if you if she sees the picture of Regan with her with the with the horrifying makeup on, right? She screams to this day. It's an automatic reaction. She screams like a little girl. Wow. And, been permanently damaged by that movie. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Oh, Spe- speaking of that face, I, th- I think there was a time, and I'm sure it's still around, but th- there were there was these uh, things happening. I don't know. I forget what they call them, but like screamers or something where you'll have a video on the internet and it's like, you know, a, 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 like a kitten, like a kitty cat video. And then suddenly like Reagan's face appears and it, you know, people scream. So I think that was like a thing on the internet for a while. Let's start with kind of the, the 1973, you know, there were a lot of New York cop movies. There weren't a lot of horror movies, right? So maybe you could tell us what was going on in 1972, 73 when they decided to make this movie and how was that, how was that received? Well, well, I'm gonna. De- I was gonna definitely pitch this to, uh, or, or yeah, I think this is a great question for Gamran. But if you could also, Gamran, you know, I, I want our listeners also to realize. I mean, again, for those who aren't as vested into the mythology of the movie as we are, um, so the movie is based on a 1971 book uh, by uh, William Peter Bla- Blatty, um, and I believe the book was uh, critically and uh, commercially successful. Um, and, and I don't know the story in terms of movie to, or sorry, book to movie, uh, but kind of maybe talk about that as well as you kind of paint us this picture of what was happening in terms of the zeitgeist of motion pictures in 1970s, in the, in the early 1970s. Sure. Uh, well, the interesting thing about Mr. Blatty is, uh, you know, we got three Muslims on here. Mr. Blatty is Arab American. People don't realize that he was an Arab American yeah. gentleman, uh, and uh, and I think he might have been Arab Christian, but he's an Arab American gentleman. And so it's not surprising that, you know, Pazuzu, the evil demon, comes from Iraq, right? You know, because that was a cultural reference that he had of, uh, you know, he could have chosen any ancient origin for this. I mean, you would have thought maybe he would have chosen Palestine or Jerusalem or whatever. He chose Iraq. And because, you know, he's, and so it's an interesting thing. My understanding of it it is that it is is a fictionalization of a real life exorcism case that, that, you know, I think it was actually a little boy that had been possessed and he fictionalized that story and made this tale. Um, Correct. It was the late 1940s and it was uh, Silver Springs, Maryland. So not Georgetown as it is in the movie. Um, however, the book talks about the possession and the exorcism, subsequent exorcism of a boy uh, in the late 1940s. So that, so that's the origin of it. And it came at a very interesting time. And, uh, and Omar, you're right. There weren't a lot of these kinds of things, but there actually had been a precedent. Uh, you, you had, you'd had Rosemary's Baby. 
which had come out, I believe it was 1969, right? Uh, and it was just before the horrible Manson murders and, and all those horrible things that happened. Uh, but, you know, that was, that was this moment where you had a movie about the uh, the essentially the birth of the Antichrist and an innocent girl being used, an innocent young woman being used to to birth that child into the world, right? Uh, and this is before the Omen. Although those movies essentially were all sp- inspired by this moment, right? Uh, and people have started getting metaphysically asking these questions. And I have an, an interesting thing that relates to what was happening in the seventies that people don't realize. Uh, there was an entire phenomena, you know, after sort of the roaring 60s and the wild stuff and people experimenting with psychedelics, there was now a new interest in the 70s with spirituality and otherworldliness. You know, the politics of the 60s had burned people out, right? And after the Manson killings, the hippie movement pretty much died out, right? So people were looking for meaning and and there was now a look for spirituality and going back to old religions. And one of the most interesting things I was involved in was a few years ago, I was approached by the Gene Roddenberry estate, you know, who, who created Star Trek. And they had, yeah, they had a project that was done, again, same time in the 70s, where Gene Roddenberry uh, was developing, he ended up doing it as a TV movie. He was developing a TV series essentially about exorcisms. It was, it was essentially an early version of the X-Files where you would have uh, a you know investigators who are looking into this the series of strange occult phenomenon and so what was fascinating for me was to go and look into Rod- Gene Roddenberry's original notes that the estate provided me right and reading his commentary and you know people have this impression of Gene Roddenberry as sort of this hyper rationalist science guy creates Star Trek you know doesn't believe in God because that's sort of the official mythology of at least the po- later Star Trek or Brandon Braga and others were very like there's no religion in this futuristic world right uh, that wasn't actually Roddenberry's perspective and in his own notes I read Roddenberry was fascinated by religion fascinated by demonology he believed that there were other entities and that there were other realities and he believed that these that the, that the exorcisms were a real phenomenon. That's why he was writing the show. So this was something that was in the zeitgeist in the seventies, and the exorcist was just part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really interesting. You like you mentioned that because you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the uh, some of the sort of recurring guests, or I shouldn't say recurring, but one of the recurring re- like recurring themes that we've seen with the guests that we've had in the last in the hundred episodes that span between your that sort of bookend your appearances Gamran is that you know 1969 actually kind of becomes that year where a lot of uh, I mean certainly white converts to Islam but 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 this sort of interest in mysticism and far eastern philosophy sorry sorry uh like eastern philosophy specifically India um, kind of becomes this hub of people trying to go. Uh, certainly, we have with even with the Beatles and going and 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 with the Rajneesh and so on. So there was this. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there was the interest in the occult. There was interest in mysticism, and sort of like I think not only the novel, the 1971 novel, but also the 1973 movie, The Exorcist, really kind of tapped into that because certainly the movie takes it on, you know, full on. Well, absolutely. And, you know, and one of the things that that uh, that struck me when we talked about the very first time we saw it, I'm, like I said, I was 12 years old and all raised in the 80s were used to the villainous Muslim characterizations, which then continued on for the next 40 years. Right. <laughs> Movies that continue on today. Right. But so we're used to that. And suddenly when we put in the tape, I was blown away as a child that the opening thing is the is the prayer call, the azan. Right. It is right. going over over the sands of Iraq. And then the movie actually bookends with that because after it's all over and the family abandons, you know, the the demon has been defeated, the priest is dead, the family abandons the home and moves on. 
you know, the last thing you hear is the Azan <laughs> praying again over the over the end credits. And that's wow. a, that's a choice. And, it, you know, it really is a very specific filmmaker's choice to bring, you know, to because each time you hear the Azan, it's it's taking you out of this simple 20th century world of modern America and bringing you to this timeless sense of reality. That's certainly, I'm sure, how Mr. William Friedkin, the director who directed it, I'm sure that was an element of what he saw was the magical, mystical sound of the prayer call taking you to another dimension and another reality, right? Um, and, and so that that struck me as a, as a young Muslim kid because I'd never see, heard the Azan ever on television or movies before. And it actually was a very beautiful recitation of it. Uh, and then And then you get pulled in to this world. And, you know, your first few minutes, you actually spend some time in Iraq meeting Arab Muslim characters. Right. And, yeah. uh, and you, then you return to, to Georgetown uh, and see that those two worlds are connected. Well, a couple of things. So one, well, I forgot to mention in terms of like sort of my relationship with the movie, it's, it's kind of actually kind of funny and it kind of maybe goes into sort of the metaphysical conversations we're having or we're talking about, which is that my mom actually saw the movie pregnant with me. She was probably, yeah, she was really? pregnant with me. Yeah, my mom tells the story. For the womb there, my friend. I know, right? Exactly. So I, I I think it was sort of imprinted in my psyche uh, even before I came into this world. So, um, yeah, uh, my mom and dad had just uh, come back to, or my, my father had returned to the States with my after getting married to my mom. And I think one of the first movies they saw was actually The Exorcist. And uh, um yeah. And, and so I remember also, Umar, that night, 1984, distinctly remember, like, our parents kind of talking about how the movie begins with the Azan. And that was so yeah. fascinating that the movie began with the Azan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, 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 Kamran, to your point, um, also, uh, I do want to kind of call into or call a, a distinction. Um, there's actually two cuts of the movie available. So depending on if you haven't seen the movie and you want to go out there and watch it, there's actually two versions available. One is sort of the theatrical release and the other is the director's cut. Um, um, is that what it's, I think, I think essentially that's what it's, I don't know if that's what it's I called. Even adjusted the director's cut recently. I saw a screening of the exorcist actually last year, just before all this pandemic stuff happened. I saw it in, you know, special screening of it where Linda Blair showed up and there were scenes in it that I was like, well, they weren't in the director's cut. I saw it a few years before. So oh, they've, Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So, so, uh, so the, it's, what is interesting is at least, at least the theatrical cut and the extended director's cut that's available on Blu-ray, um, the theatrical release actually begins with the Adhan, uh, which is like, you, you, you have, like, it says, you know, uh, I think as soon as the exorcist title card shows up, um, and you hear that kind of weird kind of like music scratching and so on um and, and then you and then you actually hear the adhan whereas in the in the director's cut it actually the movie actually begins by showing us images of the house at georgetown yeah and then it, and, i remember i saw that in the screening because i i was like oh that's i had not remembered because that was the original theatrical would just start for the azan over the credits and i saw the camera pans down the street following the family and then then you go to iraq and the azan Exactly. And um, another interesting thing is, of course, the director's cut is the one that was also sort of famous for having the quote unquote spider walk scene. And we'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get there. But um, yeah, Gamran, I, I think a, good, a great place to talk about the movie or, or to begin talking about the movie in terms of some of the themes that it explores is certainly that prologue in Iraq. Um, now what's interesting, I, I don't know, I, I don't, I read the book a long, long time ago, so I don't remember if, it, if it's mentioned in the book, but in the movie, they later mentioned that 
that that that Father Marin. So we're introduced to Lancaster Marin, played of course by uh, Max von Sydow. Incredible performance, yeah. Exactly. And uh, um, at that time, he was like 44, I think, Omer, right? Mm-hmm. I think you yeah, looked yeah, up, yeah. He was in his late 60s in the film, through pure makeup, yeah. A, amazing makeup job. Um, so we're introduced to Father Mar- uh, Father Marin, and Father Marin is on an archaeological dig, and uh, apparently this is near or it is in the town of Nineveh, uh, which is, of course, a biblical town, uh, in now in present day Iraq, but uh, Nineveh has a sort of storied history in the Bible uh, uh, with uh, many many prophets actually sort of intersecting, and there are stories intersecting and even the biblical story prophets. of Jonah. Eunice, you know, is there? So yeah, Jonah is on his way to Nineveh, and he's cast overboard, and that's when he gets swallowed by the whale. Thank you, uh, Gamran. Excellent. Um, and so yeah, absolutely. So. So uh, that's where this archaeological dig is taking place. And on that dig, um, basically two artifacts are uncovered, right? One is this sort of coin or medallion of sorts, a small medallion, um, which looks like it has uh, like like a Christ. I think it's like a, a child Christ yeah, it's, figure. Yeah, it's kind of, I remember it had some iconography on it. I think it was a protection medallion, if I remember correctly. I think that's what it was. They don't, at least in the movie, they don't, they, they don't, they don't, uh, like define what it is, but you're right. It is very, um, the iconography is certainly Christian, uh, especially compared to the other artifact that's uncovered, which is this demon head. Uh, you mentioned the demon Pazuzu. Now, now Pazuzu is never mentioned by name. In the movie, although of course he is mentioned in the uh, in the in in the in the, uh, in the novelization. I'm sorry, in in the novel. Do you know anything about in terms of demonology and where Pazuzu kind of fits in with regards to uh, either Arab? I, I don't know what it would be like Mesopotamian or whatever uh, sort of demonology that 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 the demon is a part of. And, and I've never even heard that, so I don't maybe explain the, the actual term. Uh, what the name of the name of the demon, uh, you know, as part of it said, is that it's Pazuzu in the novel, and uh, and it's never said aloud in the in the, in the movie. But that that is the demon, and, and I think uh, you know, and so that's that's the basis of it. Pazuzu, from my understanding of it, uh, is a very early ancient uh, demon demon that's named in early Christian sources, right? And my understanding of it, uh, you could probably go to Wikipedia and double check me on this. But my understanding. Zuzu is that uh, it it's it is you know when Christianity became a dominant religion in the Middle East, sort of the gods of the ancient uh, Middle East Mesopotamians were turned into demons, right? I mean because these were false gods, and so my understanding of Pazuzu is that it, that this is essentially an ancient Mesopotamian deity, like from Iraq, that Christians would later call a demon. And uh, and you know and we can talk at some point about how Muslims would see this entity as perhaps a jinn, right? Uh, but uh, but that's that's my understanding of it. So it's a very it's it's not a made up name. It's an actual uh, demon that's mentioned in early Christian sources and is seen as one of the princes of hell. From what I understand, it's one of the very high level uh, entities up there with 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 the devil himself, like really big shot inner circle sort of guy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think what's interesting about the movie not naming the demon is uh, I think the approach that uh, and, and we should point out. So uh, based on a novel written by William Peter Bla- uh, Blatty, but directed by William Friedkin. Now, I think Friedkin up until this point certainly had a lot of credits under his name, but he was probably most famous for uh, the 1971 French Connection film. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now you have a you have an interesting story that you were telling us about Friedkin, and I I, I certainly would love for you to mention it on on on, on air. Well, so I was going to this is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, you know, I I I, I saw uh, I actually saw William Friedkin uh, at the Directors Guild a few years ago doing a special presentation of his movie Sorcerer. Which, if you've never seen that movie, it is an incredible movie. I had never seen that movie. Uh, he con- he did that presentation saying this was his proudest movie, even more than The Exorcist. That this wow. is what he felt defined his legacy as an artist. I had never seen it, so and I he was up there, and you know, very well spoken man you know, in his seventies and the movie's incredible. And there's actually an inter- there's a Palestinian character that's in there. And as part of it takes place in Jerusalem. It's interesting. But uh, so he did this movie and it's a superb movie, but I was just blown away to see this man who I've, uh, you know, as someone who is a filmmaker and is, uh, you know, has all these aspirations to follow in his footsteps to see someone like this who's a hero to me as an artist up there talking so intelligently. And, uh, and actually one of my friends who went up and talked to him, and when he recognized the guy was Libyan, he said "Assalamu alaikum" to him, and it was all chatty and whatever. So he's a very, very gracious guy. So that's I was following William Friedkin when he came on Twitter a few years ago because he's just somebody I was excited to follow. And then one day I get a notification: William Friedkin has followed you. I was like, "What? What? Is this like a fake William Friedkin account?" And I went, "No, this is William Friedkin's blue check official account. He's following me on Twitter. Why is William Friedkin following me on Twitter?" So I, I was like. I sent him a DM. I, I said, sir, I'm deeply honored that you would follow me on Twitter. He's like, yeah, I liked something. I saw something you you tweeted. I liked it. I'm going to follow you. I was like, okay. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, I'm working on this TV show, Roswell. He's like, oh, tell me more about that. So I'm having this DM exchange with William Friedkin. <laughs> I couldn't even That's awesome. He's like, I watch your show. I mean, I just, that to this day, I, he's still following me. I'm always scared because anybody who follows me, I should, you know, I pretty much lose about 10% of my followers every year because they don't like my politics or my this or that, right? And free, I mean, I take Freaking still following me. He's still following me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I love is I love the fact that, hey, you, you know, you're an established Hollywood, uh, uh, you know, writer and creator. And, and I love the fact that you're geeking out about, uh, um, you know, somebody, somebody who you admire. That's pretty cool. Oh, you haven't God. lost that interest on a whole other level, man. I mean, it's like it's like it's like being in a room with Ridley Scott or somebody like that. And in many ways, with all the respect, and I have great respect for Ridley Scott. I mean, Freaking is really just a whole other level because he's made films that will survive for hundreds of years. We're, yeah. we're going to be doing, you know, space podcasts about the Exorcist 300 years from now. They are. And I mean, that's the magic of this man as a filmmaker. And he, mashallah, he's still alive and with us today. And is, you know, and the great track, he was actually going to introduce that special screening of the Exorcist last year, but he didn't feel well. So he had his friend, Linda Blair came and spoke on his behalf, right? Which was also exciting to meet Linda Blair, you know? So you've touched on, that's actually a good pivot too. You've touched on the fact that, it, well, is, yeah. it will it will last. So what was it? It hits the theater. What was it? Just that it was scary, or or was it because of the host? What what was it that really really went to a wide audience? Not just the people interested in mysticism, like you know the Beatles, those types of folk going to India, but just at a wide scale. Yeah, because it, I think it goes on to become one of the top grossing horror movies of all time. I think that still remains the case until until it until it was the top grossing. Oh, thank until you. The recent it. But again, I, I, if we do inflation numbers, yeah, I think yeah. that is still ahead of it, right? That's right. Uh, and so, uh, and I was like, what's the actual, what are the price of tickets cost in 1973 versus yeah. today, right? And so, uh, yeah. And so it, it is a scary movie and there's a lot of, I love horror movies. I really love horror movies. Uh, the very first script I wrote that got me my first agent that got me my career was a teen horror movie, right? That was modeled off of screen. So I love scary movies. 
But this is not about it being a scary movie because it's actually a slow movie. The first hour of that film, not a lot happens, right? It's a character drama, and you're getting to know these people. Like this, 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 this. You know, you, you know, Ellen Burstyn plays this actress who's there filming something. She's got, she's just gotten a divorce. She's there with her teenage daughter Regan. And you get to see their family dynamic. You get to see this priest, you know, who's Father Karras, who's kind of lost his faith and his relationship with his mother. It's character drama. And you're like, okay, where's this going? Where's this? It's been an hour, man. Nothing's happening. And then the possession starts. It's not about that. It's actually because of that first hour and those character relationships that these are normal people struggling with your struggles. Uh, you know, a single mom who's just gone through a divorce, having difficulty with her teenage daughter who is acting strangely. And this is before words like autism were in our in our nomenclature or whatever. You know, you're having difficulty. How do you handle a child that's different from everyone else? You've got a, a priest who's lost his faith. A lot of people get that, right? Even in the Muslims, a lot of people struggling with their faith, in, even in 2020. And and then you've got a you know a, a guy living with his mom. Like I take care of my mom, and so I get that, right? And you know, and those are such human things. And then the devil enters into these people's lives after you've invested in them as a pure like Broadway character drama of people. That's what makes that movie eternal: is that you see yourself in your struggles, and then. On top of this, something supernatural happens to people that are not expecting it, that don't believe in it, that are normal people. And that's what makes it so terrifying. And those people didn't do anything to necessarily like, quote unquote, deserve it or call it upon them, right? It was exactly. kind of random. Yeah. And and yeah. the chilling part of it, and again, we'll go into the deeper the scenes. The most chilling part of it, I think the most chilling moment in that movie of all the chilling moments is there's a in the early part of the movie when we just get character drama you see father Karras, the priest just you know he's depressed he's sort of unhappy you know he's struggling with his life where he's going and he's walking into a subway in dc and some homeless guy says you know do you have some money for a co- former choir boy father right and he ignores him like a priest he should give him money right but he's so lost his way that he doesn't even have any compassion for this guy he just gets in the train and ignores this guy right an hour later, when we're in the deep end of the supernatural and the demon who's possessed Regan is challenging him, yeah, he repeats those lines. The demon was there the whole time. He's been exactly. there the whole time watching all these people in their day-to-day lives. And sort of, you know, in Islam, we have the idea of the angel. There's a good angel, or the, the, both the angels are good, but there's an angel that records your good deeds and an angel records the bad deeds. So the terror of this thing's been watching them all the time. And it's yeah. been a moment. Right to reveal all the secrets it knows about them and their flaws. That, that is really chilling. That is a great point. That is a great point. Um, I, I don't want to take away from because I, I, I love where we're going, but um, just I, th- I think it's worth noting here to Umar's point or to Umar's question um, about you know what was it about the movie that made it a success? I mean, not only was it a success commercially. I mean, this was a movie that was critically acclaimed. I mean, this this movie was nominated, I think, for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and, be, uh, and, and, and Best Supporting Actress. Um, and it won uh, Best Adapted Screenplay for, uh, for, for, for Blatty, who wrote the screenplay, um, and also won for Best Sound. And I think, I, I mean, I think for anyone who's watched the movie, I mean, you know, can attest to the fact that the fact that that best sound is not just sort of a sort of vacuous sort of category. It really is well deserved here because the sound effects are amazing, are really amazing in terms of the 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 kind of efforts that they put in to get that very unique sound of not only the demon but a lot of what plays in the back that makes the movie so disturbing on many many levels. 
Um, but really, Gamran, uh, uh, I, I really want to go right back into what I think what you were talking about. You're absolutely right. I mean, the first hour of the movie, um, it, it is. You're right. You are just you are g- learning about these characters, the struggles that they're in, the struggles and challenges that they're facing, the kind of in, in the a, a a day in the life of this uh, kind of famous. Let's you know, arguably famous movie actress and her filming this movie in Georgetown. Now, I, I don't think it's ever clearly stated, but it, but it, but it, but it appears that they're only spending time there in Georgetown um, uh, during the, like for the course of the movie. Yeah, uh, in this house for like nine months or six months, whatever it takes for the, that's the feeling of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because later, like, if you remember, uh, Kamran, early on when, like, like where we're establishing the relationship between Reagan and her mom. Uh, by the way, Chris McNeil is the is the uh, actress's name, played by uh, uh, Ellen, Ellen Burns, Burst, Burst, and and so. Um, uh, she asked for a horse. And so I think that like Chris Mc, like McNeil says, you know, maybe when we get back home. So there's certainly this idea that they're only there temporarily. And so, um, but anyway, so, and, 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 and these strange sort of happenings begin to, or, or these strange things begin to happen. Uh, not only to Reagan first, it's actually begins with strange noises that are heard in like the, attic. The, the attic. Right. And, um, certainly not something that's mentioned in the movie or or in the book, but in subsequent sort of research and reading that I've done, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Kamran, uh, is they say that prior to possession, to actual full demonic possession, one of the sort of early stages is what is sort of def- what is known as infestation. Yeah. So you have demonic presence in and around people. Uh, it may be situated around a house, and so I think. The sort of scratching noises that 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 Chris Mc, like McNeil thinks are rats in the attic um, turn out to be probably that early sort of infestation of the demon. What 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 belief system are you referring to when you say when you say that that that's the process? I, I don't know. I I, I can't comment on. It sounds that. like what you're just. I have friends who are Catholic exorcists, so it sounds like a very standard Catholic understanding of things, right? Uh, you know, and so yeah, and that's and the movie largely follows that methodology uh you know if i may interject into this a little a very quick story from a catholic exorcist right uh which will give you an insight about because i think we can also talk about how a muslim might see this movie or muslim might understand the events that are happening yeah i have a friend who is a catholic exorcist and he's a really conservative catholic he's one of these guys that believes his religion is true and everyone else's religion is false right so he's one of those guys and that's fine uh and and so he always talked about all the exorcisms he's seen which have convinced him because you know he's used the holy water and this and that and it drives out the demons like obviously my religion's true i've seen it work i was like hey sure great uh, but one day he shared with me the story which shook him up and shook up his paradigm uh he got called into a case here in Southern California uh, where a Muslim American family had called because they didn't know what to, uh, how to handle the situation. So he called the Catholic Church. Their, their son, they had a teenage son who found like in his grandfather's old like trunk of stuff, an old Arabic book of sihr or magic, right? And he started reading it. And in the process, he summoned a jinn and a spirit and he got possessed. And he had been put into a me- mental hospital because they thought he was being, he was schizophrenic because he's talking in voices and another personality and all that. And the parents were now convinced that this was possession. But you know, a lot of Muslims today aren't aware how that exorcism is a very central aspect of Islam. Just today in the 20, 21st century, they just don't know it anymore. And so 
what they did was they called the Catholic Church because they watched the exorcist. They're like, well, the Catholics know how to handle this kind of thing, right? I hope that my mom does, but I know they do. So the cat, my friend, Catholic friend went there. And this is a story he shared with me. He said he went there and he did the Catholic right. He, he quickly figured out this thing is, is talking to him. It's not the boy. And it's clearly an entity, right? And because they, they do their tests to see if it's a mental illness or schizophrenia. And this thing's, you know, he knew, okay, this thing's an actual being talking through the boy's voice in the mental hospital here in Southern California. And so he did like the, the right or whatever. And the thing laughed in his face. He said, I don't believe any of that. You know, I don't believe any, I don't follow your religion. So it's not going to work on me. And I just kept laughing at him. And so he got shocked because it was the first time the exorcism had worked. And so he then called the church and the church called an imam in Canada, who flew out to Southern California, an old school imam, probably part of a Sufi tariqa, and brought him out. And he did an old uh, uh, Islamic exorcism ritual, and the thing was gone. And my friend, who was a Catholic, couldn't understand that because obviously Islam is a false religion, so it shouldn't work. And so that sort of shook him up a little bit. And so, well, maybe maybe the world's a little bigger than your paradigm, man. <laughs> wow. You know, it's, the, the, the interesting thing is how... That got me thinking about how, like, when we were growing up, uh, parent children of immigrants, we heard jinn stories all the time. But we're not telling our kids these same stories, at least not as much or to the next generation. They're like so there, there's a lot of Muslims today, which is unfortunate because I don't think they're legendary. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, I was going to say, I, I, I do, Umar. I'm sorry. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But just in terms say, of when yeah. I say we, I'm saying, I mean, I, I definitely don't as much as my parent. No way. Like, we heard those all. I would like ask for those types of stories on a, on a regular basis. But my point is that is at a broader, at a, in, in general, um, you don't hear about stuff like this, right? So it actually surprised me when you said that in Southern California, um, this is going on, right? I've heard a few things of like Rukia, people requesting Rukia from an imam. But um, yeah, I'd love to kind of even uh, hear a little about what you've heard is going on. Well, so let's also link it to the film. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, why don't we? I I, I want to. Yeah, why don't we put a pin in the conversation around Islam and 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 I think exorcism because I I really want to delve into that and come back to that. Yeah. So um, the, the the I think the anecdote that you mentioned about your Catholic uh, exorcist friend I think it's interesting because one of the things that we see in the movie is um, the kind of bureaucracy that confronts. Uh, Chris McNeil as she's beginning to seek out treatment uh, for Reagan. Uh, we see bureaucracy not only from the medical establishment, which we can kind of, I mean, we don't have to necessarily die, you know, delve uh, or spend a lot of time talking about it because they pass her off from one doctor to another. I, I mean, I imagine that's something all of us can relate to who have had to see a specialist for something, God forbid, or what have you, you know, you, you, you are kind of passed around depending on trying to, trying to define or trying to properly diagnose what it is. And so not only does she kind of, kind of face the uh, bureaucracy from the medical establishment, but when she does approach Father Karras uh, and, uh, who, you know, Father Karras is the uh, priest who is undergoing the kind of uh, his own challenges with belief and disbelief and and and, and a, a crisis of faith that he's having. Um, but when she approaches him with this idea that her daughter may be possessed by a demon, he is quick to sort of not only uh, sort of give scientific or medical probably, you know, reasons for why that may be the case, but also, you know, mentions the fact that the Catholic Church itself has sort of shied away 
from, um, you know, the topic of or the conversations around exorcism, which I think is really interesting because Gamran, to your point, that, that, that it's almost like moderns don't like to talk about or acknowledge these things because they seem too medieval uh, and these things don't occur anymore. And kind of, I think that kind of goes back to the point you were, or the anecdote that you mentioned about your, about your friend. Absolutely. Well, we, we, you know, that's one of the reasons why that movie is eternal, right? Why? Exactly. Because, you know, especially in Western culture, we have the secular culture, we have a materialist culture that attempts to explain the cosmos with, things that, that are measurable by the scientific method and all of that, right? And these are phenomena that are not measurable. And exactly. So, you know, you can then dismiss them and say, okay, this is mental illness, right? Uh, but the interesting phenomenon, the question, and there's a great Sufi master once, uh, I'll give it the story, but great Sufi master, Hazrat Anayat Khan, who I mentioned before, he was, he came to America from India in the early 20th century, and he went on a tour of psychiatric facilities, right? He was yeah. a, a little bit of a celebrity, like all the yogis were celebrities, so he was a bit of a, the first Sufi to arrive in America. So this psychiatrist, and like, he must have been like the 1920s or whatever, showed him all this research they were doing on the the, the brains of uh, of mentally ill people, Right. Uh, and how the brains appear to be different physically from, and they said these clearly these contusions and these changes in the brain created the mental illness. And Hazrat Anayat Khan said, well, "How do you know it's not the other way around that the illness altered the brain phys uh, physiognomy?" And they didn't have an answer for that, right? <laughs> because he started from the place of consciousness, right? So it's all about the assumptions of our Western culture of what is causing what. Do we have it backwards, right? Uh, so and, true. So and, true. And that's what they did in the movies. He had to go through all, and this still is true. Yeah, in the Catholic Church, you still have to go through all this. They, in order to keep their credibility in the modern world, they have to go through all the psychiatric explanations. Is this schizophrenia? Is this uh, uh, some kind of disorder? And then, as my friend gave me the example, then they get to a place where, okay, this person is speaking to me in Lithuanian. He doesn't know Lithuanian. Okay, that ain't a mental or disorder. Something else is going on here, right? Okay. And so that's when that's when they start doing his evidences. And Father Karras in the journey of the movie, initially he doesn't want this to be true because it's he's lost his faith. And right. it's like, I don't want to deal with this and people believing crap like this. And then the demon starts messing with him, like at that great moment where he's interviewing Reagan for the first time, and then the demon opens the the, the desk drawer and right in front of him and closes it. It's like what? And he's like, do it again. He's like, in time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, that's the second time. The first time he actually yeah, because the first time he meets Reagan is when he, uh, Reagan talks about his mother dying. And so one of the things that Father Karras asks uh, uh, Chris McNeil as he's leaving is, you know, did you mention that my mother died recently? Uh, because the demon knew that, right? Um, yeah, but but but, but, but like we'll take speak with his mother's voice, which is horrifying. Yeah, that happens later. Exactly. Um, and, and kind of just building on that, or, or playing on the guilt that 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 Karis feels. I think it's also worth mentioning that the character of Father Karis is uh, not only a priest. I mean, he's not just a priest; he is a Harvard, John Hopkins trained uh, psychiatrist. So he is a man of science and he's also a man of faith, but albeit a man who is struggling with his faith, mm -hmm. struggling because of economic issues, struggling because of the loss of his mother. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I mentioned economic issues, but I, because I think in addition to the kind of broader conversations that the movie is having, you know, with regards to science and religion, I think one of the other, at least in my estimation, uh, themes that are explored in the movie is class. Sure. And classism, right? Because one yeah, of the things that we see, 
you see that he's got a little, his mom's got a little apartment. He's got a little place that I think he shares with a friend, right? Another priest. He's broke. And we have this rich movie star coming to him desperate for help. Yeah, he's living like he's living in a college dormitory, I think. And meanwhile, you're, you're right. His mom has this dinky, dark, uh, and, and even the you know he walks like you like you mentioned him taking the subway. Meanwhile, you know, like uh, Chris McNeil's character finishes filming, and she's got a chauffeur who's able to take her, but she decides to walk. Right, you know, like first world problems. Like I'm going to walk uh, home, whereas Karis has to take like three subway lines mm-hmm. to get to his mom. Uh, who lives in like this kind of like basically essentially a ghetto and uh, it, this tiny and little apartment. Take care of her. I mean, that's one of the tragedies. He doesn't have the money to actually get her care, which is why she dies. He's not there when she dies. He doesn't have the money to actually have somebody watching her. Exactly. And, and in fact, his uncle even says, you know, if you were some big psychiatrist in New York, you'd have the money to put her up in a nice place or have her live in, you know, uh, you'd be living in some fancy uh, Park Avenue, um, you know, uh, penthouse. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So I think issues of class are certainly uh, palpable as well in the movie. Uh, you know, uh, Chris McNeil, one of the sort of first things that we see about where where Reagan is displaying this really weird behavior is where is the party scene. And it's this party of who's who. Yeah. Uh, I think right before the party, uh, you know, Chris McNeil receives an invitation to the White House. And then, you know, like I think you know, a few scenes later, you have this big elaborate party where kind of the who's who uh, uh, and, and kind of all these elites are there. And you know, Reagan comes and she urinates. Yeah. Um, you know, you're all die. She's because you're all going to die. And then she takes and basically pees right there on the on the expensive carpet in front of everyone. Exactly, exactly. And so I think again, I think that exploring this kind of tension between you know these people who have the ability to get Reagan to be looked at by all these doctors and physicians, and meanwhile, like you said, you know, Karis can't even afford to put his you know put his mother in a proper institution or you know uh, be a, you know properly take care of her. So you see, I think that dynamic play out as well. Yeah, you know, there's something that I I realize I don't think it's ever maybe it's been commented on. I in my most recent viewing of the film there and especially in the the context of everything that we've seen in the last few years with a lot of sort of ugly revelations about things that are happening about about me too and about child abuse and you know, one of the characters is this the this this you know director that that is working with Ellen Burstyn's character and then he dies he falls out of Reagan's window his head turned backwards right which is one of the horrific things right which triggers or something is not normal with my child but a question I don't think I ask why was that guy in Reagan's room it's why is this older man going up to this okay. room inappropriately. I, I always thought, was there this issue of, did he go into that room inappropriately? And then the, here, I'm going to have to No, I, and, and the only reason I say that, I, the only reason I say that, sorry, I, I don't, yeah, the, the only pushback I, I'll, I'll say is because in the movie, uh, the the young woman who is working for Reagan, I, uh, I'm sorry, we're working for Chris McNeil. Basically, Chris McNeil has help. She has like a like a nanny or a housekeeper of some sorts. She has a cook uh, who's this like German immigrant, right? And I think I think this other woman as well, who's like an older woman, but the younger woman who's almost like a personal assistant, I think, to Chris McNeil. She has to leave to go get Reagan's medicine. And so uh, uh, the character of uh, Burke Dennings, who's the director that you mentioned, uh, I think played by uh, an, an, an actor who it was like it was his last role that he, he died shortly after. I think he actually died before the movie was even released, uh, ironically enough, because he does die a horrific death in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, so he goes, he's sort of watching over Reagan because of that. Now, I mean, one can still maybe 
uh, sort of well, ask well, a teenage girl's room. I mean, I would feel inappropriate as an older man going to the teenage girl's room alone. Uh, I mean, something that uh, that was well, there. maybe in the 70s, maybe people didn't ask that question, but it's like, why is this dude in her room, man? I agree. But another sort of one of the questions that isn't answered and the reason why I sort of attributed uh, this to the director was, uh, and by director, I mean, Burke Dennings being in Reagan's room is, is the crucifix. Remember Reagan, uh, sorry, Chris McNeil, she finds a crucifix later and she asks like who she asks all the people in the house like who put it who who put the crucifix under cuz she's a, she's an atheist she's a proclaimed atheist she doesn't believe in religion and all this stuff and so where would a crucifix find its way in, into this home and so i thought that it was actually the director uh Brooke Dennings who went to go place the crucifix under Reagan's uh yeah and 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 hence uh he's brutally like he's, 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 he's essentially thrown out the window and, and, and he, or, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's basically, yeah, that's right. That's right. And he's killed and he falls down the, those, those very famous exorcist stairs. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that's certainly, I mean, all, all of that is interesting. I just, it's a very mysterious thing that's not solved what happened in that room. And it's such an important part of the movie. Well, I, and I think regardless of whether, whether that's, indicative or dispositive of the fact that there's uh, child abuse or some sort of sexual abuse going on. It, what is, what is, I think to me uh, sort of incontrovertible is the fact that the possession that happens on mm -hmm. this young, innocent mm -hmm. child is very sexualized. It is very sexual. Oh, it, I mean, uh, and it's shocking to people. It's still shocking today. That's I mean, what I mean. And that's what makes the movie yeah. such, you have this sort of visceral, visceral reaction to it. Uh, whether it's the crucifix, you know, sort of masturbation scene, or it's, it's her, you know, telling the doctors to, you know, uh, you know, perform oral on her. Like it, it's, there's a lot of sort of sexualized, uh, language that's happening. I mean, even what 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 Father Karras is like the demon accuses Father Karras's mother doing in hell. I mean, it's very 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 sexualized, and so I think that that is is sort of like I said, uh, you know, whether or not you want to talk about some of the other things that are not as explicit. What is explicit is that demonic possession is shown in a very uh, in a very sexualized manner, which which is also interesting because. It also reflects specifically American cultural repression, right? I mean, oh, I, wow. Yeah, I, my view is that, you know, in the Islamic world, you know, there's, there, there is very much this concept of exorcism. It's very real and jinn possession. And, but I don't hear a lot of stories about, about it in a sexualized fashion. They're more physically violent. They're more dangerous. But there's not a lot of the seductive thing or the 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 sexual corrupting element. I don't hear those stories a lot, uh, and I've studied this. Like I said, I'm part of a Sufi mystical order that deals with this kind of thing uh, in the modern world. And so most of the stories in the Muslim world are more about the physical dangers that these entities can cause once they possess people. But it's interesting that sexualization is so important to this movie because I think that's sort of the the issue in America going back to uh, the Salem witch trials. I mean, this is this country is founded by Puritans with a lot of issues about sexuality, and they would always project the shadow of that, the Jungian shadow onto others, right? Uh, and, uh, and you know, when Arthur, Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible, you know, the deep secret of, of the Salem witch trials is that, you know, people are having sex, right? And, and that's what's actually getting, you know, there's a lot of jealousies about that. And the teenage girls who are getting revenge, or, you know, you had sex with me, now you're having sex with her, I'm gonna call you a witch, right? Because that's actually American culture. That's why I think that hit so deeply um, mm -hmm. in Western society uh, when that movie came out. Yeah, and, and I think also it, it's sort of what is the ultimate sort of, uh, you know, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for here? Like what, what is the ultimate uh, way in which a person is violated, right? It's sexually and certainly a young girl. And so I think that's also kind of what's being played on uh, with regards to this demonic possession being the ultimate sort of violation um, is, 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 is kind of portrayed in this very sexualized fashion as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Our demons reflect our own demons, right? Oh, wow. That's so, deep. So yeah, that just came to me. I'll go with it, but it, it feels true, you know, and how, because I've studied exorcism in like Taoist culture in China, whatever, every society, these monsters, these, these possessed things do things that seem to reflect the fears of that culture, right? Uh, you know, and I think in China, in some of these Taoist stories I've studied about ancient exorcism, right? Modern China, the, the Chinese Communist Party does not acknowledge exorcism, but talk about ancient Taoism, right? It's very much part of the tradition. And there's a lot of stories of the, of the possessed child being disrespectful to parents. So very anti-Confucian, right? So mm. the, the possessed being the demon reflects the, the demon of the culture. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Um, I think it's worth also mentioning, I think one of the other sort of interesting not a detour necessarily, but one of the ways, like we've talked about, you know, uh, the director, uh, Burke Denning's death, uh, the way that the, that the whole, the way the movie deals with the death of the director is sort of really like kind of a traditional, uh, mystery because you have this detective who's investigating the murder and his only interest in the family. Uh, and I'm talking about Lee Cobb's character, uh, uh, Inspector uh, Kinderman and and Inspector Kinderman's interest in the family is by the result of this uh, investigation into this murder. Now, what's also interesting, and I think this goes back to this idea of infestation we were talking about, because one of the other things that, and again, you you know, you talk about those images that haunt you in this movie, is 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 that at the backdrop of this horrific murder, where like you said. You know, the 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 victim is found with his head completely turned up, you know, uh, 360 degree or sorry, 180 degrees, completely turned backwards, facing backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that it possibly could have happened by way of this fall, but most likely it did not. It seems like uh, it before he was thrown out the window. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's right. That's also mentioned by a powerful man is what was what uh, Inspector uh, uh, Kinderman says. Uh, but what's interesting is 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 uh, also. Uh, not only do you, do you have this sort of like witchcraft uh, type inspired murder, but you also have this sort of black mass uh, vandalism that takes place yeah. uh, of, the, exactly. of, of the local church. Exactly. We have these uh, horrific images of people doing again. It's it's the icons of the Virgin Mary that are covered in blood and sexualized and all of that. Right. And so, again, sexuality, the Virgin Mary represents virginity, in both Christianity and Islam, right? The, the purity. And so the, those were and those were never really explained in the movie. Is The confidence of William Friedkin is that he leaves a lot of these things saying, you know, you don't get all the answers, man. It's just stuff yeah. that's happening. And you got to deal with it. That's what's scary about it. Yeah, exactly. And and something I was going to say, even in the prologue, in, in, in the prologue is the approach that Friedkin takes to all of this with regards to whether it's the horror tropes or, you know, the drama that he that he sort of that he that he explores in the movie, he his philosophy is sort of less is more right. You don't see or nor are, are explanations given with regards to the demon with regards to like, for example, like the the entire prologue in Iraq. Uh, and 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 Father Marin finding this demon head is is some demonic being unleashed because later we know that when 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 Reagan 
um, is, or I, I should say, sorry, when, when Father Marin is reintroduced into the movie by way of uh, this approval that Kara seeks to perform an exorcism, um, the demon knows Marin by name. And, and, and one of the things that the demon says is fear the priest, kind of repeats that over and over again. Uh, and, and, and you have this audio that Father Karras records, which he later plays. And, and I think you have like this sort of linguist who tells him that it's just English backwards. Yeah. Which, again, you know, I think you, you, you sort of talked about the Catholic Church needing evidence of possession. Well, the demon is, is sort of actively trying to um, also do certain things that prevent Karras from getting the approval needed for an exorcism. It's and one of the messing with them. I mean, it's doing it very much. It's totally doing the kind of demonic uh, deception, satanic, you know, like de demonic, uh, like deception. And Shaitan is deception. I mean, we believe that. I mean, even in our tradition, Shaitan is the great deceiver. And so the idea of deceiving um, even Karras as he's trying to get the proof and the evidence he needs to perform the exorcism, right? Like, like for, for instance, not only does the, does the, uh, does the does the demon not speak in a foreign language? It essentially speaks in in English backwards. So you've got that sort of play. And then uh, uh, one of the earliest encounters that Karis has with the with with, with uh, Reagan, um, he sprinkles tap water, but but tells the demon that it's holy water. And it reacts. Oh my! I scream. And it reacts violently. Exactly. And so exactly. And it, it knows it knows it's 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 just regular water. It's acting for drama. That's right. And it's also trying to dis, you know, trying to disprove the evidence needed by the church to essentially green light or to essentially give permission for the exercise. Reagan, if, if they all go, this is just mental illness. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, I, I know I know we're getting I mean, we could probably talk about this movie for uh, well, this movie hours. We'll talk about 300 years from now. They're going to have you with the <laughs> Exactly. But I think we've t we, we, we've explored a lot of the major themes we've, I think, talked about. Um, you know, I think we've kind of shared our experiences, not only with like, some of the highlighting some of the some of the more horrific elements of the movie. Um, but I but I, I, I think it's, it's important as we kind of conclude or we begin to kind of wrap up the conversation is a conversation that we kind of put or, or, or a topic that we put a pin in earlier on, Gamran, which is another reason why I really wanted to have you on the show, which is, you know, what is Islam, the kind of intersectionality between Islam and, um, I, I know intersectionality is a loaded term and I, and I apologize for using it, but sort of the intersection of, sci of, of, of Islam with regards to science, faith, and, and exorcism in particular, if we can kind of maybe move the conversation there. Sure. Well, you know, for those uh, certainly of the listeners who aren't familiar with it, within the Islamic tradition, there within the religion itself, it's part of the religion. It's in the Quran uh, that there's two entities on earth. There's the human race, but there's a pre-existing race that was here before Adam and Eve, which is the jinn. And jinn, literally in Arabic, means the invisible ones. It means the hidden, right? And these were an entity. Uh, these were entities that are described in the Quran as being of smokeless fire. So you can think of them as energy beings, plasma, right? Uh, angels are created of light. Human beings are created of earth, and you have these intermediary beings called the jinn who live in our world. And essentially, when we human beings came in, they were sort of pushed out of our world. And much of Islamic uh, is, uh, belief is that these these jinn, these entities, are living in a shadow world next to ours where they can see us, but we can't see them, which the Quran says. And Satan himself in the Quran is actually not a fallen angel. He is a jinn. He is a jinn that had been – he was essentially like the king of the jinn who had been elevated to be amongst the angels in paradise. He was so powerful and so so honored. And then when Adam was created, the angels all bowed to Adam as a superior being. 
and Iblis, which was the name of the of the king of the jinn, refused to do it because he said, "I'm superior to this creature that's made of mud." Right, and uh, and then God expelled Iblis from paradise, made him Shaitan, the adversary, and and so that so he's the open enemy, as Islam says, and he and many of his the jinn follow him. The interesting thing, the difference between our Christian friends is that they divide the world between angels and demons, who are essentially fallen angels who rebelled against God and human beings. Whereas Islam, we have angels, humans, and jinn, and the jinn can be good or evil. They have a range. There are Muslim jinn, and there are jinn of other religions, and there are bad jinn, and there are jinns that are helpful to human, and there are jinns that are enemies of humans. So that's the that's the setup. Now, with specific regard to possession, it's a very early Islamic belief. In fact, we have oral traditions, hadith, about the Prophet, peace be upon him, performing exorcisms. So the idea of jinn being able to go into people's consciousness and take over their minds, essentially putting the, pushing out the soul or putting to sleep the soul of the person and take over their body and act. Uh, we have accounts of the prophet, peace be upon him, uh, actually expelling jinn. It's interesting because Jesus himself, throughout the New Testament, the most common, the, the actually the largest number of miracles that Jesus in the New Testament does is exorcisms. He was known primarily as an exorcist, secondarily as a healer in the New Testament. It's quite interesting, right? Even though yeah. people don't much anymore but in a lot of muslims were like what well, the prophet muhammad peace be upon him committed exorcisms it's like yeah they did so that's how far back it goes and so we've had this tradition of what we call rukia which is where where muslims following the prophet's example will you know when they're facing this kind of phenomenon will read the quran and do the examples the prophet did to remove these entities and that is a tradition that goes on today and what shocks a lot of people in the west is that it is such a, a widespread belief in the reality of exorcism today that in the Muslim world, they'll be uh, televised. Uh, jinn exorcisms are, are televised in Saudi Arabia. I've seen on YouTube jinn exorcisms in Indonesia that were televised by the news channel where a sheikh was brought in and actually exorcised somebody and it was done live. And in the Muslim world, a lot of these are done because, you know, it is to reinforce the people's belief that this, this is a reality. You and mentioned, sorry, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. I mean, I, I, I would imagine that the Wahhabis are probably pretty anti, like, exorcisms. Well, the Wahhabis, you know, look, I'm very critical of the Wahhabi movement, which is... No, no, no I, I am too, but, 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 without getting into politics. Yeah, but, with, but even then, they can't ignore that even in the even in the traditions that they will accept that jinn are there it's in the quran oh no no i know but i just thought that it was sort of something like very much akin to the catholic church in the movie at least that they, they, they would rather just sort of you know brush it under the rug rather than sort of you know uh publicizing it but i could be wrong i mean i i, I don't know I, I know for a fact they have been publicized uh uh you know exorcisms exorcism in saudi arabia that have been shown on television there wow how much you know and how much the the system approved of that or not i cannot say it would they were allowed to be shown uh but it is that's how widespread it is and Absolutely. my own, my own sufi ma order uh, i'm part of two orders one that's based in jerusalem and one that's based in west africa in senegal and uh and in senegal exorcism is a living thing today one of my members of my sufi order his brother his brother was possessed a few years ago his brother had been a boxer his brother was a boxer and was had become sort of a national champion boxer. And in before one of his matches, he sort of went to the local magician guy saying, can you give me some extra mojo, man? I want to win this match. And uh, the guy did some kind of spell on him. And suddenly my the guy came in, my my friend's brother, was spout, was saying strange things, made no sense, was becoming very hostile, was spouting gibberish. 
and was becoming very physically dangerous. They had to restrain him. And they called in the local imam and said, okay, this is whatever he did with that magician has put a jinn into him. And we have to get this out. And so as my my friend told me personally, his brother, it was a it was a several day process of them doing rukia, reading the Quran, and and this thing fought every step of the way. And finally it was out of the of the guy's body. And the brother had no memory of those three days while he was possessed. And yeah. I he has no memory of that incident. He's like, all I know is I went to sleep on Friday and I woke up on Tuesday. I don't know what happened in between. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I know, like, for example, I can speak from, you know, just my own, not experiences firsthand, but certainly, like, if you go back to parts of India, I mean, it's very, and I, I mean, I don't even want to say parts of India, but it's very common in the subcontinent. And, you know, Omar and I, our families are from Hyderabad. And, and in, in Hyderabad, you have a huge community of, uh, of of Yemeni scholars that settled in Hyderabad. Uh, they're, they're actually Hadramoti, um, and they belong to the same uh, Habaib family as the Hadramoti uh, uh, Alawi scholars. Uh, they also are known as Habib or Hab- you know, Habib so-and-so. And uh, they are known in Hyderabad to, per- to being you know, scholars who are able to perform exorcisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and that's certainly something that uh, is not only common in our tradition, like you said, Kamran, but is something that you will find, um, you know, widespread across the Muslim world uh, of scholars that are specifically known and specifically tasked with the ability to um, perform these type of exorcisms, or even if it's not full demonic possession, to uh, you know, uh, uh, give the fam, you know, give families that are suffering or, or being afflicted with black magic, with uh, with even without full possession, you have what's kind of like a, a kind of a demonic presence, if you will, or shadowing that occurs, uh, like an Urdu, like like you would say, like Asar, like it's not a full possession. But it's almost like a shadow of the of, well, of yeah, a demon, and, and it's called oppression in some of the t- terminology. You know? Thank you, oppression. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so, although it's not full possession, oppression takes place, and hence, you know, again, scholars who are equipped to to be able to diagnose these type of issues, mm-hmm. they uh, then provide them the uh, you know, like essentially the cure to that, which is oftentimes recital from the Quran, which is oftentimes you know, recital from Ahadith and so on. And I, I think a word that, to me at least, I mean, for lack of better term, I like to use, which I don't think in my estimation is necessarily negative, which is occultic. And I think that it would be, you know, we would be remiss if we deny the fact that the that, that within Islam's rich tradition, and specifically with regards to usage of scripture, Mm-hmm. For occultic purposes, and I mean by that I mean to diagnose and to cure, you know, black magic, the evil eye, you know, possessions, and so on. That's always been the case. I mean, again, something that goes back all the way to the earliest prophetic teachings of being able to recite certain portions or chapters of the Quran for certain benefit, for certain benefit, and that benefit including to rid oneself of the evil eye, to rid oneself of evil spirits uh like and so yeah absolutely we have a very rich tradition in this regard well i'm going to reveal some interesting thing because it actually will make it not only contemporary it will make the meaning this issue to our exact current 
2020 October, you know, 18th reality. Uh, you know what? Before you do that, uh, I, I want to just go back because I think this will be a great way to segue into that conversation, which is really interesting because one of the things I, I forgot to mention, but yeah. going back to the movie real quick and in yeah. that prologue scene, if you recall, when we like we talked about those two artifacts that are discovered, the coin, the medallion, and then you got this demon head. Now, what's interesting is like the archaeologist, the archaeologist, I think that's on duty or whatever, um, with Father Marin, he says that these are from two different time periods. Yeah. And I think that's a, like a beautiful kind of a, a beautiful opening to the rest of the movie because here you have the forces, ancient forces of good and evil, of the devil, of, 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 of demonic forces, and this sort of modern uh, realization or the modern world. And, and so, you know, it's really interesting where you juxtapose the prologue with that opening scene, scene in Georgetown, uh, uh, you know, sort of the bridge and all these automobiles going over it. So again, it's kind of like the tension between the modern and the ancient. So, sorry, I just wanted to kind of mention no, that. And, well, but that actually links exactly what I want to talk about because the I thought so. The movie does that, which shows that, you know, even this evil battle, this battle between good and evil is taking place in multiple time periods in the past. And now it's taking place in the 20th century, right? Exactly. And now I'm going to suggest it's taking place in 21st century. So I mentioned that I'm part of these Sufi orders and all these global events that are happening that have troubled all of us, right? Uh, And I asked their perspective on what's happening from an esoteric spiritual perspective, not just the politics of lockdowns and and the immunology of viruses. So what's on a spiritual level, what's happening here, right? And they said on a spiritual level is the events of this year have low, this is just what they said, the events of this year have lowered the spiritual vibration of the world. You know, people are frightened. Globally, they're frightened. They're staying inside. They're not going to houses of worship. There's a lot of despair. There's a lot of negative energy. And because of that, portals to the jinn world are opening. These entities are using the energy of global fear and lowered spirituality to enter this reality. So they're saying a lot of the events that are seeming very bizarre, that are seeming extreme, the violence, people acting in extreme ways, burning down cities, are not just the normal things of politics and of frustration and of economics, right? Mm. Those are elements that are real. But behind them, there's entities that are feeding off of the violence and the fear, and they're getting more powerful because of that. And so, and now that's a nice generic thing. Okay, so that's happening. I'll give you a very specific thing. So I have a friend of mine who is a is is a Muslim in Indonesia. She's got her own paranormal TV show, right? And uh, she's very popular over there. And she's a psychic medium, and she communicates with Jin and the other side. And so one day I'm getting a text from her uh, saying, uh, I had a very vivid dream of you. Something happening in your house. Like I saw a portal opening. Just from like my Sufi sheikhs who are in West Africa, and then they have confirmation from this Indonesian friend who's not connected to them saying, some portal is opening in your home, and things are, be careful, let me know if something strange starts happening. So I was like, well, that's a very strange text to get from my friend in Indonesia. And within 24 hours, in my beautiful home in Santa Monica, where I've never had this problem, there was an infestation of huge black flies. They were just dozens of them appearing out of nowhere. Wow. And they were just like, I never, I mean, I've lived here for, for 10 years, and I've never had this. And so I was like, what's going on here? All the windows are closed. Where are they coming from? And I kept swatting them. And it reached a place where I would swat them. And another one would appear in front of my eyes. I was like, that wasn't, it literally just appeared. Like it, was, it wasn't there a second ago. And now it's in the air right in front of me. And so I called her. I said, is this what you were talking about? She's like, yeah, they're coming in through the portal, these flies. And they're not flies. So that sounds crazy. Right? That sounds absolutely crazy. 
but she's telling you, she's like, they're not flies and you need to do this and this and use certain spiritual protections. Like she, you know, certain rituals with salt, which is an ancient thing, actually not just in Islam, but another tradition, salt is used to block evil portals of another dimension. So she said, place salt in these parts of your house. When I did that, the flies not only stopped, the bodies of the flies vanished. I had just swatted one and it was lying there and it wasn't there anymore. And so that's something one can choose to believe that or not believe that. I I directly experienced it. My mother became very frightened. She said, this isn't normal what's happening. She said, something that from the gin world is happening to us, she became very afraid. She said, this isn't normal. These aren't normal insects. Something strange is happening. And so it's interesting that we're talking about the exorcist because I believe there's a greater phenomenon of global global possession that's happening right now. And mm-hmm. and it's something I hope that we can all push through because these entities want us to remain afraid. However, the events of the, of the external world, politics, elections, all blah, blah, all that happened, we as human beings have to overcome our fear because that's what gives these entities power. You know, in some ways, going back now to the movie, why does Reagan, why does Reagan get uh, possessed? It's never really answered. We know she's playing with a Ouija board. Yeah. And summons his being she calls captain howdy right we that's know great thank you for reminding us yeah because i think that's a really interesting point yeah absolutely please go ahead so you know it does it's not after the movie but i'm gonna give my theory I'm no gonna- no she's definitely dabbling in the occult and 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 stuff and and the black arts but even the before that she's gone through a major breakup in her family her father has left father i think is in europe right and you can tell that there's there's a deep loss that she's feeling and she's very insecure. She's a teenager. Why is she playing with Ouija boards, whatever? She's trying to find answers to things, right? And so it is her own emotional pain that it actually allows this entity that was looking for an angle to zoom in on her. And uh, and that's the lesson perhaps of the events that are happening right now is that our own pain can open us up to other phenomena that we do not understand. So we have to start a work to try to heal ourselves or things that we do not understand can start happening, which is perhaps what 2020 is about. You know, it's fascinating that you mentioned that because I think to me, one of the other, um, again, it's not, it's not necessarily explicitly stated, but it's, it's uh, unmistakable in the movie to notice, which is that you're right. Not only is she struggling with the absence or, or sorry, the divorce of her parents, but there's an, there, there's a real absence of a father figure in Reagan's life. Right. Because you remember there's the one scene where he doesn't call on her birthday, her dad. Right. And, 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 and you know, and Chris McNeil is incensed by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have all these other characters, whether it's the director and, and regardless of whether we talked about, you know, like whether that's a positive or a negative, um, you know, figure. Uh, but both both of the priests, Marin, as well as Karis. Um, the inspector even, right? You've got all these sort of like um, male figures that are, um, you know, like, again, like uh, Reagan has a relationship with because she, there is an absence of a male figure. And again, this is probably not sort of PC in the, in, in 20, in, you know, 21st century America, but there's a noticeable absence of a father figure in that household. And, and, and that leads to a lot of the issues that we see later on. Absolutely. And and it's and I think uh, William Friedkin shows that at the very end. What's the final thing we see of her? She Thank sees, you. She sees the priest that was Father Karras and she kisses his uh she kisses him. She kisses she sees his priestly collar and she kisses him. And so that's the last thing we see of her is her connection exactly. with a male father figure. Exactly. By one. 
Yeah, yeah, no, excellent point, excellent point. Um, yeah, no, I mean, wow, you, uh, with the stuff you were talking about with regards to what's going on right now with the I pandemic and stuff. So you thought you were just doing a podcast. When you yeah. this, I thought I needed to bring these things up because I think that there's other events happening this in our current environment. There was not a coincidence that you brought up topic now. I think it was a necessary topic for a lot of reasons beyond just talking about a movie. That's super interesting because you gave me something to think about for sure. Because I was th- I was thinking you were going to with, hey, um, this is the world is telling us to kind of wake up. But you went kind of next level on the metaphysical there and saying Absolutely. Uh, more than that, right? Yeah, it's beyond wake up. Everyone has their own opinion of what wake up means, right? I'm don't, One thing we can all agree on is our emotions and fear. Fear, whatever your politics are, whatever your religion is. Fear is a destructive emotion, and I see that everywhere. Whatever choices we're making now in our lives, yeah, a lot of people are being motivated by fear, and it's bringing out the worst in us. And I would suggest it's not just because of we're fearful. There's entities that are feeding off that fear, and they are Pazuzus coming into our world. And there's something happening that's much darker than extreme strange here, and we can stop it if we individually start releasing fear. Yeah, no, that's a, that, that is a beautiful, poignant reminder. Um, you know, uh, and like, and I think you beautifully said it, what, regardless of what your politics is, regardless of what your views are about, you know, lockdowns and how the government's responded. I mean, we can sort of all agree on the fact that, um, you know, this is a, a moment for us to take, you know, introspection of our own emotions and our emotional well being and how that, in and of itself is contributing to the sort of overall kind of symptoms that we're seeing uh, happening out there. Yeah, absolutely. And as, and as Muslims, it's like, and as a reminder to myself and not, you know, to everyone really, but also to myself, it's like, when you're scared, what do you do? Well, you have to go back to God. Sure. And, and that's, and, and I want to bring a verse from the Quran and uh, I don't, uh, I, I won't do it. On, I don't want to do it incorrectly in Arabic. So I'll just give the translation that I know. There's a verse in the Quran where, where, where uh, God says very specifically, and Satan is weak. He uses the word in Arabic for weak. And this is an interesting dichotomy and a difference between our Catholic friends. Yeah. Catholic access friend. They really see this as a, this Manichaean war between an incredible power of evil that, that could kill us all. Whereas the Quran is actually saying, no, Satan, the, it's actually weak. It's weak. You are giving it power, right? But it's not, it's not powerful. God is more powerful than it. And if you turn to God, you know, one of the very, one of the very first prayers I learned as a child uh, was a prayer I, I learned when I was reading a book about Sufi stories. And, and it was written in Pakistan by a gentleman who's talking about his own stories of his life and his stories of experiences with his, chi- with his child who was seeing into the other realm. And he was seeing these beings. And his child had said, I'm seeing this man in my room. And so the father taught him the Islamic prayer, la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. There is no power or strength save in God. And says, when my, my little boy, my son would say that prayer, he would then tell me, oh, the old man ran away. Oh, another man appeared and pushed the old man away. And then he would see other beings and he would do la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. And they would not disappear, but they would smile. He said, oh, those are angels. Right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how he helps a child who like children can see other things to manage this. And so the reason I bring that prayer up, there's no power or strength save in God. Whatever your religious tradition is, if we can believe in that, that takes away the power of these entities who you know are presenting the illusion of I am Pazuzu and I'm Legion and I can float a child off the bed and do these incredible things. You're actually an illusion because the deity, God, is infinitely more powerful. 
And when you when you plug into that, this thing disappears like a shadow disappears the moment you turn the light on, right? And so that is something that I think we Muslims can bring to the conversation that we don't need to even be afraid of these beings. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be afraid of demons and jinn. They're not actually not any more powerful than we believe them to be. Yeah. Now, again, profound, beautiful. Uh, I, I think, again, yeah, like one of the, well, well, I mean, to me, one of the really sad things about the sort of like a sort of modern, you know, kind of Muslim uh, mindset about all of this is that we forget about metaphysics and we forget about the, you know, the, the fact that we're all always on a daily basis traversing the reality between what is the seen and the, and the tangible and the material world and the world that is beyond that, the world that is metaphysical, the world that is beyond, uh, you know, what science can prove and what our rationality, what, our, what, what, what reason can grasp. And hence, you know, like, for example, like, I, you know, I, I, like I, I think we've we've uh, sort of mentioned it without mentioning it, but like for example, the use like using the Quran to and reciting particular verses and particular chapters. I mean, this was prophetic advice. Like you recite the last two surahs of the Quran for protection from evil forces. I mean, that was but something the that prophet the prophet said. Peace be upon him. Himself was inflicted by them. I mean, the last absolutely. Two because someone put a spell on him and he That's couldn't restraint. Right. He actually had someone put a black magic spell on him. And, and it, it was it, it caused physical knots in his hair. And as each verse was revealed of the last two surahs of the Quran, the the uh, a knot was un like what uh, what w- was opened, and hence like relief from this black magic that a a a a, a witch essentially had had performed on the prophet peace be upon him. Um, you know, in a, like another example that we find, in, you know, like you, you've got you know daily du'as that the prophet would make, daily supplications. You know, and one of the supplications of the prophet is even when you even when you undress. Even though you're undressing in private, you know, one of the things that the Prophet would say is, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubuthi wal khaba'ith. Like, oh Allah, I seek refuge from male and female, like evil forces, essentially. Like khubuthi, like dirty, evil forces. So again, the Prophet was always acknowledging the fact that our day-to-day existence is one that is uh, that we are constantly traversing between the seen and the unseen. Between and we have lost in the Western world, and we Muslims in the Western world have lost you. because we are uncomfortable. We don't want to seem like weirdos. Well, it's also right. We've bought into this sort of like uh, postmodern uh, kind of like post sorry post enlightenment understanding of religion as being you know a nicety that you do you know, uh, on, on a Sunday or in your it's private life. Thing. It's a social thing. It provides structure in your life. I'm like. Yeah, it also fights off hidden forces from another dimension. <laughs> no, and, and also the supremacy of reason yeah. or science above anything else. Like everything can be proven and anything that doesn't doesn't jive with science or with rationality has to be rejected. You know, and and, and if, if I could again, one, you know, one of the early scholars would say that one of the reasons why earlier communities was just dis- like were destroyed, essentially, like their civilization was destroyed and lost is because they superseded reason over revelation. Like they didn't understand that there is a mystery and a depth to revelation that reason or science or, you know, our, our, uh, rationality can never fully grasp. Yeah. And, and the great thing is within the science itself the openings are there i mean as people are studying quantum physics as they're studying all these things they're realizing okay 
we don't actually understand the material world. None of it's actually here. The electrons aren't there, right? And so they're just probabilities. And so what's happening here? And uh, and so that is how we're coming back full circle. That's a great point. In college, I studied uh, in a religion class. I studied a text from ninth century uh, Islamic jurisprudence or, or, or theology called the Kalam. It was, and it was, a, there was an interesting fact, and we studied this in a college, Western American college with mostly non-Muslims in my room. And we studied, and there was a whole, there was an interesting section in there talking about how because God is both the creator and the destroyer, those are the, his names in the Quran. The universe actually is constantly in a state of flux. He's constantly creating it and destroying it instantaneously. So we're never act- – there's no physical reality. We're just be- – we're essentially like uh, uh, watching a movie camera playing out, right, or, or pixels lighting up. Everything is a new creation every instant, right? There's no actual continuity. Continuity exists in, in our mind. It's not real. This really upset my classmates. They were really disturbed by it, and they got emotional about it saying, you know, what kind of crap is this? And then – and they got upset, like angry about this text we're reading. And I'm the only Muslim in the class. And now that's what quantum physicists say. They see electrons instantaneously jump from one state to another with nothing in between. It's exactly what the Mutakalimun, the Kalam was saying, you know, 1100 years ago. And that's because reality is is essentially a flowing river rather than a stasis. And mm. what point of the river is, is the river the river? It's always changing, right? And that reality, which is what religion serves is that there's this whole other, you're swimming in an ocean and your senses can only see a tiny portion of that and your science can only examine those things that fit within the logic of the science. Anything that doesn't fit within the logic, anything that can't be reproduced in a lab can't be real. But there's a lot, I mean, that's crazy. Just because it doesn't fit your paradigm doesn't mean it's not real. It's just your your, your instruments can't measure it. Absolutely. And I, I think, I'm, and I know we can, again, we, we, we can kind of talk about this and and I, I, I want to, kind of wrap the conversation um you know if i could also like uh, you know it's interesting that the quran when it talks about the soul right and and to me this can be extrapolated to beyond just a conversation about the soul into a conversation around uh the spiritual dimension in general right like like the quran says because the prophet is asked you know, tell us about the ruh, right? Yes, ruh. Like, tell us about the soul. And then the answer that God gives is very interesting. That that, that the answer that the God that that God Allah gives to the Prophet, which is, um, قل, um that you know, say uh, uh, that uh, I'm forgetting the exact Arabic, but like, say that the soul is from the command of its Lord. Like. But you have been given very little knowledge about it. And to me, that's you can extrapolate that beyond just the conversation about the soul as an individual soul, but about the spiritual dimension as a whole. That you have been given very little in terms of what is really behind, like, which is really beyond the curtain in terms of the spiritual dimension. Absolutely. And, and all, all of what we're talking about deals with that bil ghaib and deals with the unseen and that spiritual realm. And, and I think over time, this 2020 will open up people to the possibilities of the unseen. I think that is one of the esoteric purposes. God willing. God yeah. willing. I mean, yeah. people argue about politics and this and that. But deeper, I'm people are asking questions about what is the nature of being, right? What is, you know, all, all the arguments that we're having about the virus and lockdowns and everything else is coming down to uh, the nature of, uh, uh, you know, people talk about epidemiology. We're actually talking about uh, epistemology. What is the nature of truth? How do you find knowledge? And that is going to bring us to well, maybe we don't actually, you know, is it just empirical knowledge? 
are the realities beyond empirical knowledge because we're experiencing them, yet we can't quanti- uh, quantify them. And that process, I think, has started en masse in 2020. Well, I think that, uh, Omar, I think- is the point of The Exorcist. After Shabbat, <laughs> how do you know what is truth, right? That's the point of that movie. Uh, and I've and I, people can go back and listen to previous episodes. I've 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 often said. I mean, the crisis of twenty or what twenty twenty has shown us is a crisis of epistemology. Whether it's the world of quote unquote fake news or it's dealing with uh you know with news coming out of with regards to the administration or with the pandemic. I mean, to really be able to have the uh, to be able to be inoculated and and to have the immune immunology, as it were, to be able to decipher between what is truth and what is untruth, what is truth and what is spin, what is truth and what is propaganda. So like that, that is the crisis of epistemology we face. And so, people have not been asking those questions until this year en masse, I think. And that is, I think, the blessing of this year. I didn't like this year. I'm praying to God it ends real soon and we get to a better one. But that is the spiritual purpose, as my Sufi teachers have said, and I'm seeing it now with my own eyes. And there's a reason why this podcast I think is part of that. I think this podcast will make people ask questions they never thought they'd be asking when talking about a horror movie. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that nice, beautiful plug. And I think I don't think we could have done it better, Omar. Well, you definitely surpassed my expectations. I'm not as big of an Exorcist fan as Pervez. So I was kind of, we were talking about the show. He was really yeah. excited. And I was like, well, I want to, I want to meet Kurt Kamran because I've been following his stuff for decades, <laughs> you know, Sleeper Cell and all that. So I'm like, I'm down with that. Exorcist, I'll, I'll go along with it, but you definitely blew away uh, my expectations. I mean, I, I was, I'm glad to have met you finally, Cameron. Um, but uh, definitely got me some, got me thinking about some stuff beyond just the movie. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm honored to have been on, and I hope I can come on again before episode 203. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah, God willing, for sure. And uh, I guess uh, as we wrap, Cameron, where can people find you? Do you have any projects that you'd like to plug right now? Anything exciting that you're working on that you'd love for people to look out for? Please. Well, you know, people can go to my website, which is my name, which is Kamran Pasha, K-A-M-R-A-N-P-A-S-H-A.com. Uh, there you can purchase, I have two novels, uh, as I, uh, your professor very graciously uh, introduced earlier on. I've got two novels. One is Mother of the Believers, which is about the birth of Islam from the point of view of the prophet's wife, Aisha. Uh, and the second one is a novel on the Crusades about Salahuddin, Saladin, and Richard the Lionheart. Uh, and they're pretty good books. And if you, you can get them there, you can follow me on Twitter under that name. Be warned. Uh, I have a lot of opinions on Twitter. They're not often mainstream opinions. Uh, they're not often popular opinions. So if you don't, if you want to hear stuff that you don't really like, you come to my Twitter feed. Uh, and so <laughs> don't, don't come to my Twitter feed uh, and because that's just who I am. Um, but, uh, and, and, and that's, I mean, I've got several projects. I hope to be able to come on in the future announce. I've got several TV shows I'm developing uh, set, you know, one set in the Ottoman empire, one actually set in Islamic Spain. Um, and so both of them are progressing. Uh, the events of 2020 have slowed down, you know, selling them to networks, but both of them have, you know, have moved forward, you know, thank God both of them have directors now. And so I want to be able to announce the details of that and hopefully have those shows on the air because, you know, we don't have that many shows of Islamic history on Western television. <laughs> and so if I can get one of them on the air, I think I might've broken through something. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And uh, no, absolutely. I mean, we'd love to have you back on to to talk about a project in particular. Um, I, I like I, just reading your bio. I know there was so many sort of projects that are in the works. Uh, I think you've got something on Rumi that's got me super excited, um, all of that. And so, yeah, we'd love to have you back on. Um, I guess, I mean, 
Omar, I know this is something that you and I have kind of dabbled in or, or, or at least talked about, but we've got someone like Kamran on the show. I think we'd be like, we'd be remiss or foolish not to, t- like not to get someone like Kamran to comment on. Um, what do you see with regards to, to, to movies, man, theatrical releases? Like what, wh- how do you see all this getting played out in terms of, like I said, regardless of the politics of it, yeah. like just in terms of theatrical releases, like we saw what happened with Tenet, we saw what happened with Mulan, like what is the future of motion picture releases? Uh, and, you're talking to two, and you're talking to two people who love going to the movies. That's what Barbez and I do. Like we, we get together and go to the movies. Yeah, like person. I love movies. For me, movies are a spiritual experience. I think movies in a theater, not just you've got your 70-inch screen. That's right. Movies in a theater with strangers in a dark room um, you know, are special and sacred. And I use the word sacred specifically because they take us back to our ancestors sitting in front of a fire, people hearing the shaman telling stories. There is right. something deeply primordial. Exactly. And they go back to our sense of when we go to sleep, but the dream sequence, right? It's very personal. Uh, and, uh, and you know, you don't get that in your house. You get that in this big empty room of darkness and, and it's very psychological. So I've been heartbroken by what has happened to the theatrical industry this year because, you know, pretty much it's been shut down. Uh, theaters are going out of business, which breaks my heart. Uh, you know, when, you know, regrettably theaters are still not open in Los Angeles County where I am, but the moment that they opened in Orange County, which is an hour drive away, I went and I immediately drove, literally the day they opened, I drove to see Tenet in the theater that day, right? Uh, and and I've actually been back there. I was went back there again to see The Empire Strikes Back, you know, re-release 40 Oh, wow. So jealous. So in jealous. The theater, watching it. And I watched it with a friend who had never seen The Empire Strikes Back. What? So you watch, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh my god, they're, they're going to an asteroid field!" Oh my god, <laughs> it's great. We're Look, huge Star Wars fans. It's great watching someone's actual reactions to the Empire Strikes Back who's never seen it before. <laughs> so, no, amazing. So, in the theater. So to move forward into the future, the one good news that came out today is that thank God New York State has at least opened up theaters. I believe outside of New York City, but throughout the state, Governor Cuomo there has opened them and. The economics of theaters in North America and in the United States in particular, New York and Los Angeles are the largest markets. That's and right. most of the country, I have my relatives in Texas who are able to see theaters there, right? I've got friends in South Dakota who can go to theaters, right? Chicago. I have friends in Chicago who've gone to movies. Chicago. Yeah. And so they have been closed and we can debate the politics of why they've been closed, but they've been closed and it's been very, very, very damaging. And as a result, movie theaters have been largely going under because the studios cannot afford to release any movies when they cannot get the major audiences that they need in New York and LA to generate the kind of revenue that they need, at least in the United States, right? They have, other countries have different restrictions and movies are making some money overseas right now. So as a result, we've had all these movies. I'm a huge James Bond fan. So I've been, it just keeps getting, I've been excited for this movie and it keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed. I am hopeful that today's movement on theaters in New York will save the possibility of there being movies in 2020. As of now, everything's being pushed to 2021. My understanding is Wonder Woman was still theoretically on for 2020. December, I, December 25th. Uh, you know, I love the first movie and a lot of Muslims were upset that I liked They're like, oh, Gal Gadot is really. I was like, yeah, but it's a great movie. What, what's your problem? <laughs> it's a great movie. And I'm really excited for this one. And I pray to God that this one comes out. And I'm hoping maybe some of the movies that, I mean, I think it's unlikely if they've already been put on a new date in 2021 that they'll push them back. But if we can just get Wonder Woman out, 
it will make this year not a total loss. Uh, and the pivotal thing is now it's not just the thankfully some of the restrictions being lifted. It also ha- and this is again the issue of fear. You know, it, even if they lift restrictions, or people are afraid to go then it doesn't matter, right? And that's the tragedy. And everyone has to figure that out for themselves of what their comfort level is. I would urge people to, if you love movies, to not live in fear that you you will get sick if you go see a movie. You know, you got to make your own choices on that. I think there's really good advanced ventilation right now. And I think that, you know, the current systems they've set up will make it relatively safe. And I think living your life in constant terror of death is the loss of life itself. And the loss of movies is a loss for me. So I'm hoping that we can save them. I think there will be restructuring in the industry as a result of this. Blockbusters that are costing $200 million to produce will likely become not the norm for the next few years. We're going to, it'll become the seventies and we're talking here, see how God works. We're talking back to a movie from the 70s, right? This is, Exorcist is a small character drama with some good special effects, but it's essentially a family character drama. And it's incredible because it is a family character drama. Uh, And I think the good thing that will come out of this is hopefully in the next decade, we will return to 1970s style filmmaking, which are character dramas, uh, because we can't afford to do the Avengers every day. We just can't right now uh, because the economics have changed. But I do believe movies will survive with God's grace. I think they're too important to not survive. Uh, and I think it'll become new and better movies because we were all talking, like, I'm sure you've done podcasts about that. People are getting burned out of the superhero movies, right? And they want good storytelling. And some of those superhero movies are good. Not all of them are. And I think this is actually going to compel good storytelling. That's the blessing. As for anyone as an artist and bring it to Islam, you know, when the Islamic, when early Islamic scholars stated that it was forbidden to make any depictions of, of human beings or animals. Even though the Quran says nothing about that, but early Islamic scholars said it is it is forbidden, it is idolatry. So how did artists respond to this incredible restriction? They turned to geometry, calligraphy, architecture, and mastered them at a level no one had ever mastered them, right? So Muslim artists were given, oh crap, you just put this rule on us, what are we going to do? And they came back and made magic with it. And the rule became the blessing. So I hope that a decade from now, we look back and say, this crap that happened created even better movies and saved the movie industry and saved theaters. I'd like to believe that's how it's going to play out. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I I, want to mention this real quick, I think, because this story just dropped today and got me really excited. So AMC is offering you an opportunity to rent an entire movie theater for $99. Dude, sign me up. Yeah. Do you like uh, bring your buddies, whoever's comfortable, and go? Yeah, absolutely. That's not a bad deal. That's a great That's a, I think I think it's a fantastic idea on the part of the AMC to save a lot of uh, a lot of their probably uh, th- movie theaters that were going to go under. So I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, circulate the uh, the article. Um, uh, at, so, like, if I wanted to go see if I wanted to see Lawrence of Arabia, I get like five friends, and they'll they'll screen that. Now, I don't know if the screening is, uh, you know, like on demand or you only have a certain number of the, uh, like movies to choose from. But the idea of you being able to rent an entire theater. Yeah, that's absolutely available. See, that's the brilliant because everyone who follows my Twitter knows I'm actually pretty conservative and, and libertarian economically. That's the brilliance of American capitalism. See, here we go. We're adjusting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great deal because you pay 20 bucks anyway for for a movie, right? So get a hand, get a half dozen friends and go. 
I mean, Omar, me and you were talking about on the last episode. I mean, the last movie we saw was like, I think Onward, but we like you and I took our families. That was easily a hundred bucks between the two of us. Yeah. So imagine you and I rent a movie theater and we go watch, you know, um, yeah, World, uh, Wonder Woman. Our, our, our girls would love that. Uh, no doubt. At the end of the year. So anyway. The funny thing of all this is if the, if Wonder Woman doesn't come out, the only movie that can win the Oscar is, is Birds of Prey. <laughs> it's going to win all the Oscars next year because that's the only movie that came out. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. There is some great content, by the way. Uh, I, I do want to quickly mention I, I, I'm in the middle of watching um, uh, the Trial of the Chicago 7. Highly recommended. If, if you guys are, haven't heard of it, check it out. It's based on true story of the riots that took place in 1968, extremely timely, written and directed by Sorkin, uh, uh, Aaron Sorkin, uh, of course, of West Wing fame, Social Network, etc. cetera. Uh, brilliant screenplay writer, also now a director. Uh, it's got an amazing cast, but definitely catch that on Netflix if you're able to. It's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. So again, great content out there for you to check out on Netflix, Amazon, so on. But anyway, Kamran. Uh, can't thank you enough, man. Uh, I know we went way over that. Uh, we'll be what we said we were going to do, but um, again, it's always a delight to have you on the show and to talk up movies, to talk about metaphysics and everything else in between. Well, like I said, I'm I'm honored to be on. I hope I get to come back on again. The last thing I'll say to everyone is, if you haven't seen The Exorcist, go watch it. And if you haven't seen it in a few years, go watch it again because exactly. it's a movie. It's like it's like Moby Dick. You know, people once said to me, "Read Moby Dick every ten years, you'll find something new in it." And that's what this movie is. I watched Exorcist again uh, last year, and I was like, "Wow, I, I don't remember that scene. I don't remember that." Wow, okay, that made me think about this whole new thing. It is a movie with so many layers because it's magical. And uh, and watch it again. I think there will be a lot you can learn from it. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, as always, listeners, for checking us out. Uh, we promise to have a very exciting episode uh, right before the election to talk about everything politics, uh, completely something we didn't really touch on this episode, which was great because we needed that palate cleanse from what we've had um, the last few episodes. So uh, definitely do uh, come back and join us for that episode. And as always, look for content uh, that we put out. And thank you, as always, for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, feedback, do email us at diffusedcongruence at gmail.com. Uh, check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. And uh, let us know what you think of the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.